the Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations, from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Valent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And Shelley Bays here in Northern California by the ocean. We've got a very exciting guest on the show this week. And I was um, thinking about what the theme is really for this particular week. And I just think it's about life's experiences shaping us as entrepreneurs, us as leaders, frankly, us as human beings going forward. And the greater variety of experiences we go through in life, I think that that creates an environment and a sense of learning. And I think, you know, Shelley, this harks back to one of our earlier episodes. Actually, at the end of episode two with Raj Singh, if you remember, he said to us, if I was king for a day, I'd make everybody travel because I think that if they traveled and they spent some time with other people in other cultures, they would realize they're just humans like the rest of us. They mm-hmm. do things in slightly different ways, mm-hmm. but they have the same motivations, same desires as we do. And I think he said that because he appreciated that having these life experiences, especially travel This leads to a greater sense of experience to therefore equip oneself to being a better leader and to being a more successful entrepreneur. I would agree wholeheartedly. I think the more times in life one can grab experiences, whether it's travel, whether it's a new opportunity, a new situation, I think these are the moments where we learn. And this is all about learning. And um, it's interesting you bring up Raj because that did resonate with me. Yes, absolutely. And um, maybe it's time now for me to introduce who our guest is. And it's somebody that I've known for about three or four years. He was helping to run a startup business here in the UK in the area of recruitment. I ended up investing in his business partly because I was impressed with uh, Simon Billsbury and the leadership team that was around him. And uh, Simon impressed me with his worldly wise view on matters. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Simon, uh, welcome to the Startup Sensations podcast. We're delighted to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great, thank you, and thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you, and uh, we've got Shelley here, as you can see, all the way from California. Absolutely. Hi there. Hi, Shelley. Can we just start up, Simon, by uh, by me asking you about your current role at, at uh, Smart Recruit Online, or Oki, as it's now, now called? Uh, what are your key challenges that you're facing there in 2023? I have a role on the board of directors with Oki, um, but I also serve as its chief commercial officer, working with the CEO to position the company through the startup journey. It's a venture capital-backed recruitment technology play. Um, in terms of the challenges, we're going through a, a round of funding now. This will be our third round of funding. Um, 2023 probably won't go down as the best year in venture capital history for for funding. Um, But I must confess, we're not really suffering from the pressures that other companies in the fundraising space are. We're kind of insulated from that in terms of our existing investors and the profile of of their investment strategy um, has kind of mitigated the, the, the outside pressures. 
Um, the biggest pressure that we're we're feeling right now is we, as you as you highlighted, the company's called Smart Recruit Online, but it's now trading as Oki. So there's been a rebranding, um, and that rebranding is around a new product launch. Um, so all of the pressures and fun of bringing a new product to market when you said you would uh, is is what we're enjoying right now. Simon, I mean, we've known each other for a little time, uh, and I know how how much of an impressive career you have over well over two decades um including uh something we'll get onto a little bit later in the show uh, which is about your uh startup in in california but before we get to that could, could, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and what it was that first got you started in, in into the business world yeah um i'm a military brat my dad was in the army and um we traveled around um following his career um grew up in mainly germany i was born in germany uh, but we also were in Northern Ireland and Cyprus. Uh, moved back to the UK when I was about 15 years old, having sort of spent my time around military people and military careers. Um, came back to the UK, um, went to a school um, in Leicestershire that was m- more geared to international type kids. I tried to go to a, an open day for a local school and found that I couldn't relate to the local children who'd known each other their whole lives. Uh, became fast friends with a, a guy at the school and at the same sort of same age, like 15 years old, it was time to think about careers. And, and my father made it pretty clear that my desire to join the military like him was not something that he was that into. Um, and like most young kids, you want to do what your dad does. So if I couldn't do what my dad did, I'd do what my friend's dad did. And going to a, a, a school that was non-military and, and private uh, private education, which was completely new to me, basically exposed me to the world of entrepreneurs. A lot of the kids there were entrepreneurs' children. And like I say, my, my friend's dad was an entrepreneur. So next best thing, I was going to follow in his footsteps. So that's pretty much the, the beginnings of, of the entrepreneurial bug. So what made the uh, the young Simon Billsbury tick then? If you if you think back to those days when you were kind of a, a teenager, not many people think about entrepreneurship when they're when they're at school. But what made you tick? What 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 gave you that inspiration and that motivation? I think I was pretty entrepreneurial at school. Um, most of the things I can I can talk about, I suppose. But I was always trying to find ways to to make money and get stuff done. I had paper rounds. I used to go fishing and sell fish to the officers' mess so that you know, and deliver their papers at the same time. So I was into supply chain stuff quite early. And, you know, uh, I got jobs in university while I was, you know, working behind bars and nightclubs, promoting nightclubs or selling whatever. So I think I always had that hustler mentality in some way, shape or form. Um, And I think sometimes you end up in the entrepreneurial space because you don't really know what else to do. I did want to join the military. I did want to do what my my dad and some of his friends did. And all of the people I grew up around, they all had military careers. So when I went to a, a school where people's parents were not in the military, that was really scary to me. You know, it's interesting because... Um, you think back on those days as a very young person, you probably didn't use the word entrepreneur back then. Um, but, and, and you probably didn't think of the word risk, you know, being a risk taker, but, you know, you think about it, traveling around internationally, growing up internationally, um, going to this school, which was a really different experience for you. Those were all, the characteristics that we talk about good entrepreneurs having today, you know, having learned from those, is there any kind of 
you know, story that you look back on in particular when you went to this school that really caused you to grow up a year uh, faster than you might otherwise have? I don't know if there's a story, but it certainly demystified these people, right? So, you know, I understood the, the military careers and, I, you know, in the military, everything is delineated by rank and regiment and things like that. It's not really delineated by wealth. We all kind of live in the same houses and everyone kind of gets paid the same. But what delineates people from other people is really leadership. So I think that my influences from from growing up the way I grew up were very much leadership based. And I do focus on entrepreneurial leadership. That's kind of my thing. Um, but it also showed me that these people who were very wealthy and got, you know, on their 16th birthday, they didn't get just, a, they got a car. <laughs> and so I basically got to see like one side of life and then another side of life. And I just remember thinking, I like this more. Yeah. This is better. And, um, and it's, and these people aren't magicians. They're not, you know, they, they, they can be competed with. That you can have it with hard work and, and, you know, innovation and all. Yeah. It just demystified it and made it more accessible. I think. Interesting. You know, that was kind of the early influences, but in terms of entrepreneur at that age, I mean, I, my degrees in environmental science. So, and I thought, well, this is irrelevant to business. I'm a hippie that likes shiny things. What am I going to do? But there were people like that, that fit that model. You know, people like Richard Branson, who were doing cool things in business and seemed to be in tune with what was going on environmentally and what was going on socially. And I very much lent towards that as well, because that seemed to tick both boxes. I was always trying to reconcile the desire to make money and be successful with uh, quite a heavy social conscience and, and being in tune with not building things that cause damage. So what was your first job then, Simon? How did you make the leap from education through to actually doing a day of work? Um, my first job was pretty much stayed with me throughout my whole career. I worked for a um, European staffing company, technology staffing company or recruitment company. Um, I went to work for them in 1996. I remember um, after I got the job being on the train back to the place I went to university and I had a big grin on my face and there was a late, an older lady on the, on the train saying, you look very pleased with yourself. What's going on? I was like, well, I've got a job. And she was like, oh, great. What are you going to be doing? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. But essentially, we, we focused on the mobile, the, the part that I work for focused on the mobile telephony uh, industry, particularly the wireless rollouts in Europe for the, the GSM mobile phone networks. And we were basically a very high tech specialized recruitment firm that moved consultants around Western Europe and Eastern Europe to build out the mobile phone networks when the EU at the time deregulated the the um the spectrum for each country so it was it was a bit you know and a lot of the people that we ended up placing on projects were ex-military i mean if you know the origins of mobile telephony it all started in the british army with their mobile command centers and what have you so i was quite quickly able to draw a line from the world i knew to the world that i was now in my dad's uh you know was a military officer but started when he was sort of 15 as as a as a grunt my brother was a, is a very bright engineer with with lots of patents and what have you, but they both served it. They both worked in the in the mobile space in, in some shape or form, or in the communication space in some shape or form. And I just quickly figured out that oh, this is me working for people like my dad and brother, but I get them their gigs and I negotiate their compensation and their contracts. So I was quite quickly able to sort of familiarize or or, or bring some relevance to my life and what I was doing professionally. And I think that's a very important thing to be able to do. Um, 
in fact, the first person that I ever sold for a permanent recruitment fee was my brother. So, it, so if anyone asks you the question, would you sell your mother? The answer is no, but I would sell my brother. <laughs> Can you just now bridge the gap from your first job as an exciting, excited young man trying to, you know, make your way in the world to how you ended up in San Diego and then finding, you know, founding a company, growing it as CEO. And you're out there for well over a decade doing that. Yeah. Um, so I went to work for the company in the U- UK, which is very much a European market leader in what it did. And I kind of learned my trade there. Um, very quickly became quite successful in terms of the revenue that I was generating as a salesperson, account manager or account executive, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then the company got into trouble. And this is where I, I kind of think I learned a lot about business was watching one go from being quite successful to to crumbling and having to be sold. The CEO, who was my mentor, uh, probably the most influential person in my career at the time, he, they, they, the company got bought by a public company. They looked at the portfolio of companies that they they bought on this acquisition spree, and they started doing what what companies do. And they noticed that we had a subsidiary in the states out of San Francisco that had been going for about three or four years. I can't remember now, but it only had five six hundred thousand in revenue. And uh, the CEO wanted somebody, me, to go to America and basically decide on whether this could be fixed and turned around or whether we needed to, to, to close it down because he was under pressure from, from the new owners. At the time, it was a huge risk because I'd just gotten myself on the charts in terms of income and, and positioning in terms of revenue, which is that that industry is all about and I was basically giving up all this new business and this new income in order to go to San Francisco to to the, the part of the company that was the highest risk to basically put it all on black or red whichever and see if I could you know do it again but without any of the the connections or support that I had from Europe so I decided to do that and left there in 98 arrived in San Francisco in 98, which for those of us that are old enough, it was startup mania. Heaven. And um, <laughs> I spent the next 18 months taking that from, from like I say, 500,000 to 18 million in revenue. And then my C- CEO mentor got fired by the public company. Um, they should have fired him. He was just trying to buy the company back and, 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 and being a rebel like he was. Um, and when they fired him, I was not too pleased uh, my loyalty was very much to him. I didn't believe in the new vision. And then I found myself in my sort of second career crisis where, you know, I don't like being the person who's just sitting there pointing out what should be done differently and what's wrong. I like to be the person that's actually making the change happen. So I held out for as long as I could before the encroaching headquarters from the UK came over, but basically got to the point where I've had enough of this. I want to do something different. And the my mentor CEO uh, was like, if you want to go on your own, I, I can't remember if he suggested it first or I suggested it first, but basically I got, if ever you want to do something more entrepreneurial, I will back it. So they fired my boss and he funded me as a short answer. <laughs> so Simon, obviously it was a really exciting move initially. Yeah. As you said, it was kind of startup heaven. Lots of things were going on here. Yeah. But you must have also found some real differences just in the day-to-day living because the U.S., you know, is different from the U.K. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about what you found, what hit you, how you adapted to this new place? One of the things I came up against in Europe that I didn't like 
was I looked very young when I was in my 20s, like very young. And I would be doing business with people on the phone. And then I would show up in, in Holland or Egypt or Poland or wherever. And if I was on my own, they would double take to look, you know, whether my dad or my <laughs> uncle was with me. Or if I was with one of my employees who was older than me, they immediately said, hi, Simon, to that person. And I felt like there was a an issue with age, right? You know, you're not old enough to be doing what you're doing. I hadn't really experienced that before. I don't suppose I would have it given where, you know, my background, you know, in the military, every, you know, a lot of people are, you know, the military cohort of people is, is much younger and, and, and what have you. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as soon as I got to the States, I was like, they don't care. Like, in fact, it actually is completely acceptable to be not old enough to shave, but trying to, to, to make, you know, make it happen. So that was one of the, the, you know, I found that there was no constraint around age. Nobody had, no one cared. That, so that was the first thing that really jumped out at me. The other one was just the, if you had to design a culture and a type for entrepreneurship to work, it would be America because of the optimism, enthusiasm, the ambition that's just there, right? People are just naturally more geared to that. Then in, in the UK, it's more reserved, more conservative. It's, it's changing. And over the 20 odd years, it's changed even more. Mm. But at the time, that was the stark response was, this is an entrepreneurial culture, especially as I was in San Francisco, right? It's yeah. very difficult to look back at these things and be objective because I was a different age. I knew different things. I was exposed to different things. And it was a different era. But certainly the best area was 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 radically different from Aylesbury Buckinghamshire and whereas I had I maybe knew one person whose girlfriend had made some money because she was like employee number 30 at Dr. Solomon's virus software I so you knew someone who'd made some money from stock options to everybody's making money from stock options so all of a sudden this perspective of trying to make a salary of this became trying to get equity in a business to get exits. And I'm like, exits? What are people talking about? I remember doing my first wave of interviews for new people and be, you know, interviewing someone straight out of school and they'd be like, when are we going to talk about equity? And I'd be like, what? Like ownership in what? Simon, you quickly moved on to be um, the CEO of Kineticom based in San Diego, and you oversee the company's expansion into new markets, new regions. Uh, What challenges did you face during that process and what strategies did you use to overcome those those challenges? Um, So we founded Kineticom in 2000 in, in San Diego. Um, we left our, we left the old company and we started from scratch. Like I say, the, the old CEO was the, was the investor and one of my, um, sort of day-to-day business partners there came with me and, and we were the founders of Kineticom. Um, we got off to a really flying start. Everything was great. Um, you know, we, we managed the exit very nobly and, and with good communications between us and the company we were departing from. Uh, so we felt like we'd navigated all of the usual landmines for a competitive startup spinning out from an existing company. Um, and then 9-11 happened and we lost 75% of our revenue in that week so you know we 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 were straight in at the deep end um and you know i think i think it's relevant to this to this podcast because of the nature of the podcast but my so my other co-founder my my day-to-day business partner he was from northern ireland 
and I'd been in Northern Ireland in the 80s during the conflicts and we're sitting there going, whereas we feel really new to the world of, of startups and doing it on our own, the world of terrorism is not new to us. And, and, and whereas everybody in America was completely freaked out and didn't know what to do next, you know, we were quite, you know, it's quite sad to say, but that was quite a familiar situation to us. The scale of it wasn't familiar. The scale was unbelievable. But the, the you know, the fact a terrorist act had happened and you had to decide that you were going to carry on, right? So mm-hmm. we, we felt like even though what we're doing is completely unfamiliar, the environment in which we're doing it in is very familiar. So we have an advantage. We're not freaked out and we're going to, we're going to, we, we know what to do. We know that this will end. We know that this won't go on forever. And we're going to, we're going to figure out how low the company can go. And we're going to figure out what we're going to look like at the point when the inevitable bottom happens and it starts to rebound. So that was the first challenge. Um, and then we were incredibly fast growing, right? So Kineticon was the 33rd fastest growing company in America, so it was listed on the Inc. 500 as number 33. In terms of the recruitment or staffing industry, we were the fastest growing over five years by 2x. And with that, you know, and that was great. Everybody loved it. But behind the scenes, I mean, it was chaos. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Going from, from, from zero to 55 million in five years. And, you know, we weren't VC backed. The company was debt back so we had lines of credit with our bank and just as we'd get a new line approved we'd be back saying we've blown through that line and we need a an extension and the lines of credit were secured by our homes so our houses were on the line we had you know the, the bank didn't need uh to knock on the door if things went wrong they already had the keys right we had liens on our houses um and it was it was, you know, my definition of entrepreneur and our definition of entrepreneur is probably more extreme than it needed to be. But we were fully committed. There was no fa- If we failed, it was lose your visa, go home, lose your home, yeah. take the two bags you arrived with, get out. So, Simon, would you, in in retrospect, because you came through it, of course, and, it, you know, there's a happy ending to the story, would you... How would you advise somebody else in that situation? Would you advise them to go for it, double down and and you know make it happen or in retrospect what would you what would you say? That's a good question. Um, depends who it is, depends who you're advising. Not everybody should go for it. I'd say a few things. One, other people's money. Right. You can do it with other people's money. But, you know, let's face it, less than one percent of companies that try to get funded, get funded. So this notion that all entrepreneurs are backed by venture capitalists is complete. Not true by a long stretch. Most entrepreneurial ventures are are done by people with their own money or the money from friends and family. I never intended to put everything on the line. I thought I was sacrificing the income and all the rest of it. And the, the investor was putting the money on the line. But when you have that discussion with your bank for the first time, once you've left that job and big pay- paycheck and handed the keys to the car in, in the apartment and the bank says, that's an interesting story that you and your founder friends had a nice conversation, but we don't care. We want your assets on the line. So it wasn't really, I'd love to say it was a heroic decision, but it wasn't. It was, we'd already left, we'd cut the umbilical cord and the bank says, you have to sign up. So putting all of those assets on the line, I actually think, I can look at it both ways, right? In some, there were some times when that was the only thing keeping me in the venture because it was so bleak. 
Um, and then there were other times when we could have been enjoying it more and it would have been better to have that unreasonable amount of pressure taken off, right? It's, I think it's okay to do that for a few years, but I did it for a decade. And even when I got the bank, finally, like we're throwing off $3 million worth of EBITDA. We're, we've got multiple offers for exit. We've got millions of dollars worth of San Diego real estate guaranteeing the lines. And I finally got the, the, the houses removed from the, the, the bank line. It took about six months to even process it because it was so used to being in that stress position. And they'll tell you things like, well, we never, we never do that. We, we, we can't even remember a time that we've, we've implemented those, those contractual pieces. And we're like, okay, we'll remove them then. And they're like, nah. No. So I think it serves, it can serve in some instances, but it can also take away. And I think that, I think investors are now are, are more um, realistic about what amount of pressure you need to put on people who are under a huge amount of pressure anyway and put a lot of pressure on themselves. I don't think you need that external you're going to lose everything because it can go against you. And what's acceptable to you when you're single and in your early 20s and what's acceptable later is is different and it should be different. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the same thing. You know, they talk about um, lots of entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs are in their 40s, let's say, or, you know, 45 to 50 yeah. <clears throat> when we tend to think the stereotype very, very young. But you think of what you went through starting that, let's say, at 45, that would be, you know, almost cruel and unusual punishment in a way. It is. But so have things changed? Do you see the lending institutions, investors, you see their perspective having changed a bit? I don't know because, I, you know, I spent, I spent that part of my career dealing with debt and, and banks, mm. you know, um, and now my career, now, now what I do, I mean, I, I, I do the executive role and I, I'm, I'm on the board of that company as well. But in terms of what I do, the way I define it is that my, my, my reason for doing things is that I basically help CEOs, venture capitalists, and boards maximize the value of their ventures. But within that, my emphasis is on the CEO and helping the CEO, like a Sherpa or a coach or what have you. And all of that has been venture. So in the last two years, I've led two rounds of, of VC and been the supporting coach to another company, supporting the CEO through another two rounds of VC. And I'm in another round now, and I've got two more rounds lining up for next year. So I don't know what happened. I mean, talk about it makes sense when you look back and connect the dots. I don't know when I became sort of the VC-backed fundraising guy, but that seems to be what I spend a hell of a lot of my life doing. Before you came back to the UK, I know that you met with a guy called Steve Farber. Yes. Now, for those who don't know, Steve Farber is the, is, is the author of a business book called Radical Leap, and it's all about leadership and, and team building, etc. And I know that you and Steve have struck up a good, strong, long-standing relationship. What have you learned from that relationship? What are the key takeaways from, let's say, his book, and how, how best have you applied it in the real world? So Steve and I go back a long way to about 2005. He's, he's someone I hold very dear as a dear friend. And we just have the same belief system. So Steve got intimately involved with Kineticom. And the way that we describe it is that me and my coach basically operationalized LEAP. So LEAP stands for Love, Energy, Audacity, and Proof. Um, his book is called The Radical Leap. He's got many other best-selling books since then. But as we're talking about that one and what we did with it, we basically, re we, when I read that book, I was like, 
I don't know what this is, but there are values. It wasn't that we tried to fit into those values. Those those letters and words enunciated our values. The most fundamental part of that was Steve's belief that leadership is an, is an act of love. And, and basically what he thinks about in that term and what I believe in that term and what we rolled out across the company is that we believe that if you, if you look at the basis of emotional intelligence, that leadership is an, act, is an emotional act. And if you want to, and if you accept that, then the most powerful emotions are fear and love. And by default, companies tend to go to fear. Fear of not getting hired, fear of not being promoted, fear of getting fired, fear of you know not getting the credit for the work that you do, fear of having a bad boss, what have you. So we basically had a, a, a company value system that was based on leadership from a place of love. That's not the romantic love, obviously. It's more to do with the sort of agape type love, the love of what you're doing. So... Um, yeah, that so and Steve used to be, you know, he used to come to our Christmas parties and give out the leap awards to our employees. They all knew him. And, you know, after I left um that venture, I maintained that relationship with Steve and we continued to work together and we would do uh, you know, speak together. But basically, you know, we operationalized his work and nothing has changed. I still would not think about building a company or advising somebody on how to run a company and abandon that framework of thinking. It hasn't changed. It's just become stronger and stronger. In fact, I'm speaking to Steve and two of his mentors, uh, Jim Kuzas and Barry Posner, who are both famous authors as well, next Friday. Um, and uh, I'm speaking to those guys about what they're up to next. But, you know, it's continuing that same school of thought um, that there are, that there are different ways of, of running businesses and and we're from a very particular school of thought and, and that hasn't changed and I don't think it will change. It's a great book and, and for those of you watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, it's it's called The Radical Leap, Steve Farber. Uh, please check it out and uh, tell Steve that we've given a plug for his book as well, Simon. Simon, it's, it's been a great conversation. Uh, we, we are getting close to the end of our time here. So I've I just got a couple of uh, questions just to finish up. One is briefly about your future. I mean, how do you see the future? What's your outlook in life and business looking forward? What's your levels of optimism for, for you in the business world? Um, well, I like doing what I'm doing. Um, I like being the person behind the person. Um, I think I was really good at being a CEO. I think I gave that a really good crack of the whip. But by the end, you know, after after that gig, I, I angel invested in something that I started. And I had to have a, a real honest conversation with myself, which was, I'm good at being a CEO, but I probably don't like being a CEO anymore. And my skill set is very much being a CEO. So I'm kind of screwed. And that took a few years to work through. But Basically, what I do now is I bring my experience to bear and, and my heart to other people's problems, and I can leverage all of that experience. And all, you know, my job is, is to try to take all the pain that I went through and help other people avoid it. And and have you know, one of the things that helped my career accelerate was I was very good at learning from other people's mistakes. I didn't need to have to make them myself in order to, to, to get the message behind them. And if I can sort of pay that, you know, I was also extremely lucky with my mentors, my coach, Bill, and, and all the people that helped me in my career. 
And I just feel like I'm in that period now where it's my time to do that and to give back and to help. And I enjoy that way, way more. Yeah, fascinating. I still get the action, but I'm not the only person at two in the morning with this going through my mind. There's someone else worrying about it more than me. And I also like the divestiture. I'm not on just one thing. Yeah. I have multiple things going, whereas and, and as to whether a, an entrepreneur should have many ventures going is a, is a different discussion. But certainly for the, the intense early stages, you know, having more than one thing is, is probably not the best option. I feel like I proved myself in terms of putting all of your eggs in one basket and watching that damn basket. I did that for, for maybe too long. So I'm yeah. a bit more, you know, I want a little and I've got a family now, so I, I can't be yeah. as hell for leather and and risk nuts as I was. I do have one final question before we wrap up, uh, which is um, what, what, what advice would you give in emerging leaders who, who would kind of wish to be inspired by you and, um, and, and wanting to make a very positive impact in the world of business? What, what advice would you give? Um, well, we need more of them, right? We need more people who are doing it for the right reasons in the right way. So um, I don't think you can do this type of thing unless you want to do it. So if you're doing it for, you need to examine the reasons why you're doing it because they're really going to get tested. You know, you can tell true entrepreneurs, they've all got the same thousand yard stare. You immediately know when you're in the presence of someone who has done it versus someone who's talking about it. You know, we coined a term ages ago called entrepreneur, which is the people that want to be an entrepreneur. They want to talk about being an entrepreneur, but as soon as you actually propose something that's entrepreneurial they don't want anything to do with it so i actually think the amount of people that are suited for entrepreneurship is stable Mm. i think it's like the gene pool or some weird selection process um i think it's either in you or not so my my advice would be to make sure that it is in you because it's going to get tested and it's not for everybody you know i don't advise everybody to just give up their job and start a business because if you look at the statistics, it's not always uh, a great bet. Yeah. But for the people that are geared up for it, and this is another reason, back to Shelley's point about the investors being so hard on entrepreneurs, the numbers on entrepreneurs first time out aren't great. But second time entrepreneurs, the numbers are really good. So let's not kill the first time entrepreneurs you know, with stress and pressure to the extent that they don't ever want to do this again, because we do need people who want to do it for the right reasons in the right way. I don't know if that answers that. It, it certainly does. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, that's an important takeaway for, for all of our listening and, and viewing audiences uh, from, from both sides of the pond. Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. I wish we had two hours. So maybe you'll have to come back, Simon, because <laughs> I have a ton of questions. Would love to. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Shelley, that was another really interesting conversation with Simon. I mean, he covered so much ground, uh, 30 years or so, both sides of the pond. And he's got a very interesting background and, and a very credible leader. I mean, I've known Simon for a number of years and had various meetings with him. And he always comes across incredibly impressively. And and now I can see why. You know, it's the buildup of all that experience over 20, 30 years What stood out for you, Shelley, throughout that conversation? Well, I would say exactly what you just touched on there, which is this is a man who has had 
a phenomenal number of different life experiences. So he's lived in different places. Um, he's experienced the military life, which is something very distinct and different. So I was impressed with how he took all of those experiences and built on them, never looked at any of them as a real detractor. Uh, I remember him describing the difference, for example, if you are a very young person in a managerial role in the UK at that time versus the US and how, you know, he felt a distinct coldness, if you will, from the UK side. Why are you here as such a young person? And it was the total opposite in the US. I think things have changed now. But those kinds of stories to me were fascinating. And I can see how it they all went into creating the man that you've known for so long. Yes. Um, what I didn't know about Simon was his um, links and, and friendship with Steve Farber. And the mention of that book, if you remember, The Radical Leap. So the letters L-E-A-P is an acronym for love, energy, audacity, and proof. And his theory is really all about extreme leaders. What they do is to cultivate love, uh, love in the broader sense, obviously. And love creates energy. It generates that energy. And energy obviously inspires courageous audacity. And therefore, that's the willingness to, to take purposeful risks, which obviously lead to better outcomes. I think that that creates a, a very interesting and compelling structure for leadership and what extreme leadership is all about. And that word audacity, I, I actually looked it up. And actually, when you look it up, it's the bold and blatant disregard for normal constraints, which actually in the framework of an entrepreneur, that is an important attribute and a characteristic for a leader because you need to take risks, don't you? You can't just play safe all the time because that's not good enough. And so the taking of these audacious moves is actually a very powerful message. Absolutely. I, I liked that structure and I liked the concept of love, as you say, not sort of the romantic love, but the feeling that it's important to create a community, a, a, an atmosphere of support, of positive thinking. I mean, these are the things that resonate with me in terms of how to motivate a team. I think you get the best results out of that very positive approach versus, you know, cracking the whip and threatening and, you know, the, the kind of opposite. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. That's it for another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.